This is the Transcend Human Podcast, a weekly show where we learn what it means to rise above the human condition. We hope the conversation today is just what you need for the week ahead. All right, friends, welcome back to the Transcend Human Podcast. As always, great to have you with us. It is May 22nd, 2023. We are smack dab in the middle of a series called Transcending Eschatology. So basically transcending end time events, right? And for those of you who've been around for the first four episodes, you kind of have an idea of where we've been and where we're going. For those of you who have not, uh, you might want to go back and start on episode one. Uh, But if not, um, here's where we've been. So in the first episode called The Doomsday Clock, uh, we discussed our social and cultural beliefs about the end of time, typically based on science and entertainment. In episode two called The Flip Side, we dove into the end time beliefs that are largely based on our spiritual or religious belief systems. So we looked at some of the high level or uh, major world religions and what they believe about the end of time. Episode three called Carrying the Torch, we discussed the history and the origins of Christianity, um, Christian eschatology, and how it basically can be traced all the way down from Adam and Eve to us today. And then last time, episode four called Choosing Sides, we really discussed the high-level categories that most Christians fall into when it comes to eschatology, the the divisions of belief structure within Christian eschatology. So today, we are going to start getting into the deep end of the pool. Um, We're going to get into a little more detail in our topic today. So today's topic, Transcending Eschatology, part five, Making It Plain. So chapter one, we're going to discuss back to the Bible, chapter two, prophecy and parenting, and chapter three, conversations with adult children. Chapter one, back to the Bible. So if you feel like we've had this conversation before, you're probably right, because at the end of the day, this entire series is kind of pointless without us uh, coming to terms with the Bible itself. I mean, eschatology is fun for a lot of people thinking about the world ending, trying to theorize how it could happen, watching apocalyptic television and movies, uh, talking with your friends about your different ideas, reading into the culture, politics, and religious happenings, and trying to determine if they have anything to do at the end of time, watching events unfold on the world stage, wars, the turmoil in Israel, uh, everything from natural disasters to UFO sightings, people posting comments about paranormal things happening to them. There's just a lot going on right now, and you can really get drawn into that world for sure. But as a Christian, at the end of the day, you have to make a personal decision about one thing, and that is, what are you going to do with the Bible? So last week, we discussed three ways that you can view the Bible. As the inerrant Word of God, so this idea that every single word was determined by God, there's no errors, there's no debate, God said it, and I believe it. Option two is the fact that it's errant at times, but very important. So even if there are some problems or some contradictions, the Bible is still inspired by God, and it is what we use to get truth about future generations and and the world around us. And then three, 
people view it as a good book with some good stuff in it, right? This idea that the Bible is simply a compilation of human writings. Some are helpful, some are insightful, uh, most are artistic or poetic, but basically everything is left up to our interpretation. And we discussed that this will be a very important decision because the Bible is the source of truth for the church today, right? It's the only thing that we really have written down. Yes, we have pastors, preachers, teachers. We have people who um, that we can go to with questions, but where do these people get their answers? At the end of the day, the people that we get answers from are getting their answers either from other people or from the Bible, because everything is boiled down in the Christian faith to this book called the Bible, right? It's the foundation upon which it's it's grown. Now, throughout time, we've had oral tradition passed down, right? But the Bible is is really the resting place for many of these oral traditions. Let's look at it this way. If the Bible is right in its assertion that people back in the early days lived close to 900 years at a time, so this would be back before the flood, if, if a person lived to 900, think about the number of generations that would be living at one time. In, in a scenario like that, oral tradition makes perfect sense because everyone is around and living at the same time, and it's just passed down from generation to generation and from household to household. But that's not the way it is today. Today, we're lucky if we reach the goal of seven, Right. I did a little Google search on the number of generations living at any given time, and it sounds like we're at about six today. So if you look at the six generations living today, it starts with the GI generation, which is born anywhere between 1901 and 1926. Then there's the mature or silent generation from 1927 to 1945, baby boomers from 46 to 64, Gen X from 65 to 80, Gen Y, 81 to 2000, and then Gen Z um, from 2001 to present. So you've got these six generations. And as you get down in the number of generations available or living at any given time, that ability to share things through an oral tradition gets harder and harder. And the fact that things get lost along the way is really one of the main reasons why things get written down. And so that's where books came from. And, um, you know, in, in this day and age, blogging and podcasting, and there's just, we've taken the, the um, information that we have and we put it into a format that can then be transferred quickly and also stored or archived for posterity. Now, it's interesting. Some people actually believe that the next generation is already here. They call it the Generation Alpha and they believe it began in 2013. And if that's the case, then technically we are living in a time when there are seven generations living at the same time. But again, that's with life expectancy hovering around 77 years, nothing compared to the 900 that the Bible talks about at the beginning. So oral tradition was a very real thing, right? Until life expectancy dropped, and then people stopped passing those things down orally, and they started writing things down. And the Bible is really just a compilation of stories that were archived, stories that were written down. So let's get back to the way that we view the Bible, right? It's, it's not unique. In fact, I would argue, argue that every religious tradition in the world has some form of written book or sacred text. If it's not one book 
or two. Maybe it's a compilation of writings from the leader of that group. But there's always something. There's always some foundation upon which these religions exist. So why would it be any different for Christianity, right? In episode three, we called it Carrying the Torch. I spent the whole time basically following the truths that we have been given all the way from the dawn of time to today, from those oral traditions to prophetic writings, to the Jewish Torah, to the writings of the early Christians who lived during the time of Jesus, to the Bible that we have today. It's obvious that there was a torch being carried. There was this through line that has existed all the while, and it left us holding this one sacred book. The problem is that book is under fire, right? The Bible has never been under more scrutiny than it is right now. With the internet, podcasts, and social media, people all over the world are weighing in on what they believe about the Bible. Some to uphold the sacred truths and its sacred status, but others to tear it down and point out the obvious errors within its pages. In doing the research for this series, I can't tell you how many TikTok videos I've seen where the creator has literally thrown out the prophetic books of the Bible because they are simply apocalyptic literature, similar to the genre of writing that was done in that day. And because it was popular back then, or because there was a genre called apocalyptic literature, then that means that the ones we find in the Bible must just be of the same type, right? Uh, simply the science fiction of the day, artistic prose, telling stories of impending doom, and yet all with this positive outcome for the future. A victor rises in the end and saves people and sets things right. Again, back to the importance of how you view the Bible, right? These creators have chosen the third explanation. It's a good book with some good stuff in it, right? The Bible's simply a compilation of human writings. Some are helpful, some are meant to inspire. There's a lot of artistry and poetic things in there, but it's really all left up to our interpretation. And some of these creators may be part of a fourth group, people who believe that the Bible is actually bad, that it's a list full of lies and things to lead people down a road to nowhere. But again, it's not important what other people think. It's important what you think, what I think, because that will probably determine our next steps when it comes to eschatology. Now, when you take that word apart, you get eschato or eschaton, which refers to the end of the age or final events in the divine plan. And you get ology or logos, uh, which means the study of. And when you study something, what are you typically doing? Well, you could be observing a thing, right? You could be experimenting on a thing, but most of the time you're reading about something, at least in the classical education systems that we've all grown up in. So it really makes sense that a student of eschatology or a student of end time events would need some kind of a book or books to study from. But that's where I'm going to leave things for today with this understanding that we all need to come to terms with the Bible because it's where we find a great deal of the discussions around the end of time. For me, I think I've been pretty transparent about my beliefs about the Bible, right? I've kind of moved away from the inerrant view of the Bible. I just find that that belief was blindly passed down from generation to generation over the years and from my parents to me. And it just doesn't take long to see that there are things that don't add up, things that seem to contradict other things. And at the same time, I don't think that I'll ever be able to look at the Bible as just a collection of inspiring stories, like a good bedtime book for adults. 
Um, there's just way too much going on for it to be that. There's numerous authors all writing about the same God, the same Jesus, and the same universal story with a beginning and a projected end. And I just can't get around the fact that in order for a book like the Bible to exist, there had to be some level of celestial intervention. Not that God wrote the Bible, right? That would be the inerrant view that we've talked about and the, the, the view that I've let go of. But that doesn't mean that God couldn't have had influence on these writers to help document their little piece of a bigger story, to where when all of them were brought together, you had this amazing snapshot, this amazing synergy that would together have the power to lead an entire group of people from the death of Jesus all the way through the church age and to the end of all things. Now, I do believe that there are errors in the Bible because people are human, and each story written was at a different time from a different perspective. These days, if you asked five people to document a Taylor Swift concert, for example, you would get five completely different perspectives on it, and probably a few contradictions as well, because people experience things differently. People interpret things differently, and people miss things that other people do not. At the end of the day, the fact that there is so much consistency in the Bible is really what does it for me. I'm not focusing on the inconsistencies because those do exist, but for me, it's the overarching consistency that really gets it. So I'm somewhere in the middle, right? I don't believe that every single word is from God and that there can't be anything wrong with the Bible, but at the same time, I view the Bible as one of the most important books we'll ever come in contact with. And that amongst the or contradictions and errors, there is this through line of truth that exists. And if we can just get past all of the bickering and the arguing over the details, that through line will literally guide us where we need to go. Okay, let me get off that soapbox because that was a rant to be sure. And we really need to keep things moving. So chapter two, prophecy and parenting. So to be clear, the rest of this series will be based on my view of the Bible, because it has to be, right? If, if you're going to talk about Christian eschatology, you have to go back to the Bible. I mean, yes, I could just sit and talk about this person said this, that person said that, but ultimately each of those people I'm referring to is basing their belief on what the Bible says about the end of time. So ultimately, I may as well just go back to the Bible, and if I go back to the Bible, I'm going to go back with the view that we just talked about, right? That there is a through line running from the beginning to the end of the Bible that we can trust, right? That there's truth in there and even predictions in there for us to find, Easter eggs, nuggets of gold, things that God specifically inspired the Bible writers to include in their writings because they were going to be part of that bigger story, part of that bigger through line. Now, each of these pieces would hold the book together, making it important. Following this train of thought, I also believe that God intervened during the canonization process, right? That he inspired those people in attendance to select the right books that should be included in the Bible. Now, they had hundreds, if not thousands of manuscripts to go through, right? And any of those, any of that manuscripts on those lists could have been added to make up the Bible. But I believe that God took that group of people and inspired them to wade through those lists and ultimately pull out the ones that needed to be pulled together into the Bible. Now, 
Over time, that original canon, if you will, that's what they call it, has been reworked, retranslated, rewritten numerous times. Do I believe that errors have crept in because of this over time? Yes, 100%, I do. But if I believe that God inspired the original authors, and if I believe that he inspired the canonization of the Bible, then I really have to believe that he's protecting the through line as well, that the important elements have not changed. And that gives me hope as we dive further and further into the prophecies of the Bible. So today, let's start small, right? Let's start at the beginning with the pieces that we can all understand. In episode three, I suggested there are two levels of eschatological content in the Bible. Level one is the oral tradition and or the plain language. So the kinds of things that you would discuss around the fire at night, uh, normal conversations that will happen, written stories and information that is written in plain language, making it very obvious what you mean by it. And then level two is what we refer to as Bible prophecy, the more traditional stuff, apocalyptic literature, stuff that is anything but plain and simple, right? The writings that are couched in symbols, similes, metaphors, even mathematical elements that have to be decoded, really not for the faint of heart, but at the same time, they're often explained or decoded right in the same book. But today, let's start with the level one stuff, right? It's the ground floor of eschatology, so to speak, kind of like reading spark notes on a full-length novel. You, you get the entire thing just in a very simple format, in a summarized format, but obviously it's not as complete as the entire book. And so it is with a lot of the things we'll look at today. We'll see some great statements and some pretty straightforward information about very specific things, but it won't be the complete story, only the highlights. But before we discount them, maybe we should read some of them just to see how real the Bible actually gets about the end of time. My goal here is to show that we can learn a lot about the end of time just by reading the plain, old, simple language of the Bible, long before we dive into beasts, dragons, trumpets, seals, and all of that stuff, right? So let's start off with a little caveat. Now, I know that some of the belief systems that we talked about last week incorporate Old Testament passages into their belief system about the end of time. Passages from prophets like Ezekiel, Isaiah, Joel, but this isn't really something that I grew up with. And when it comes to these prophets, these were the two things that I typically heard about them. First is that a lot of the prophecies delivered by these prophets were situational or cultural. In other words, they pertain to the Israel of that day, things that would happen if they didn't choose God's way, if they chose the highway instead of God's way, right? And then second, I've, I've been told, I, and just based on my readings, I, I still believe that these prophecies, um, even though a lot of them weren't specifically about the end of time, a lot of them have this crazy overlap, and language that actually matches some of the prophecies that do exist about the end of time. Just adding to that level of consistency I talked about when it comes to all of the books of the Bible and how they fit together. So here's just one example. In the book of Amos, which is in the Old Testament, God is having an entire conversation with the children of Israel through the prophet Amos. It's pretty obvious that God's people are doing their own thing. They're kind of forgetting who they are. 
and they're just running wild. So an entire chapter, chapter eight, is God explaining how things got so bad and how they will continue to get worse in the future if things don't change. The chapter has many different illustrations of the way things will get worse. Some might be illustrations for the children of Israel, but I find it fascinating that these phrases are used. So in verse 9, it says, The sun will stop shining at midday. Verse 11, There will be famine in the land. And verse 12, People will stagger from sea to sea and walk to and fro. Now, this is all in one passage, helping the people understand their future if they can continue to walk away from their creator. It's localized and very specific to them. But as we'll see as we get deeper into the end-time prophecies, these are words and language that are used in other parts of the Bible to describe the end of time. Now, I'm sure theologians have a term for this, right? As there's basically a term for everything these days. But I just call it layers or overlap. And it's really one of the things that I see in the Bible that makes me believe it's more than just some random collection of books thrown together for inspiration. These happy coincidences, as we'll call them, exist all over the Bible. And for me, they show that God had his hand in it somehow. Like he sprinkled these little Easter eggs throughout the book for those willing to find them and appreciate them. For me, this is one of the otherworldly aspects of the Bible. The elements that I just don't see a human author being able to come up with. Yes, we're intelligent beings and we can really spin a good tale, but I don't believe that multiple authors living in multiple time periods would be able to put all of these pieces together and have them come together like a puzzle the way that the Bible has with the level of connectedness and complexity that it has in it. It's that through line that we've talked about. Now, at some point, it just seems like an impossible task without a little help from a higher power. But I digress. Let's get back to the Bible and the plain language conversations about the end of time. So in the Old Testament, we find a lot of prophetic passages, right? Ezekiel is full of them. The vision of dry bones, the sign of the two sticks. In Zechariah, we have the visions of the horses among the myrtle trees and the man with the measuring line. In Isaiah and Jeremiah, there are multiple prophecies uh, against the enemies of Israel. And as you read through these books, you can't help but see a pattern. Over and over again, God is showing things to the prophets, things that need to be pointed out, corrective things, parenting, if you will. I've come to view the prophecies of the Old Testament as parenting kids between the ages of 2 and 18. Let's look at it this way for a second. So as parents, we set up rules and expectations in our home. And as long as things are going well and the kids are following the rules, there is peace and typically safety. For the most part, the family is getting along and the kids are learning and growing into the uh, mature adults that they need to become. But when a child goes his or her own way and decides to do what they want in direct opposition to the rules of the home, things break down. There is now a separation between the parent and the child, created by the child lying, manipulating, or doing something that could harm themselves or others in the family. So let's say it's a five-year-old finding matches and trying to burn things in the house. Now, they've been instructed that matches are for adults only and that they are very dangerous, but the time has come for them to see for themselves. So the five-year-old lights a match and sets a small piece of paper on fire in their bedroom, 
thinking that they can just blow it out as soon as they're done having fun. But the problem is it drops on the ground, and now the carpet is on fire. And as soon as that happens, a set of curtains catches fire. And before you know it, the entire room is going up in flames. Not only is the five-year-old in danger, but now the entire family is in danger, and the lives of everyone in the family will be forever changed. Or maybe it's this. Maybe it's a teenager sneaking out to a party at 2 a.m., At the party, there's drinking, and there's this new game where kids bring prescription pills from home. They throw it into a big container. And then the game is like Russian roulette, right? Kids pop five random pills at a time, washing them down with shots of vodka. And then everyone waits to see how the killer buzz will work out. Only the pills your teenager took were the ones that don't really play nice with alcohol. After the party, they stagger home, they go to bed... But during the night, the interaction between the pills and the alcohol reaches a climax, which stops their heart, and it's lights out. Your teenager does not wake up. Now, obviously, these choices impacted their life, but think about how much that's going to impact your life and the family's life for a very long time. And what was our role as parents the whole time, from 2 to 18? Well, to be parents to set boundaries, to teach our kids right from wrong, to warn them about the consequences of bad decisions, to help them to see that some decisions can have devastating effects on not only your future, but the futures of the people around you. And yes, to provide consequences along the way for that behavior if it's outside of the lines, thereby teaching our kids that there are negative consequences when you step out of bounds. There are rules that are really in place to keep you safe and the family safe. And that's really what I see when I read through these books in the Old Testament, right? I see God as a celestial parent trying to raise his kids, these rebellious little kids between the ages of 2 and 18. He sees them doing things that will hurt them. So he pulls the prophet aside and says, hey, check this out. Like, you need to tell them this or that so that they'll stay safe. So the prophet goes back and he has a conversation with the people and he explains the error of their ways. And sometimes the children of Israel listened and everything went back to peace and safety in their land. But other times they chose not to listen and they ended up going through dark and difficult times, sometimes under the thumb of another ruling kingdom. So most of the passages that appear to be prophetic or seem to be somehow talking about the future are just this right? It's God working through the prophets to guide his people away from danger. Now, there is one massive exception to this, and it lies smack dab in the middle of these prophetic books. It's the book of Daniel, which we'll dive into in a future episode. Daniel is packed full of information about the ruling civilizations of his day, but then at some point the book transitions into content about the future and even the end of time. I've always viewed Daniel as the sister book to the book of Revelation in the New Testament, and I often refer to them as the prophetic bookends or the bookends of prophecy in which every important piece of prophecy related to that is squeezed in between them. So that's really all I'm going to say about the Old Testament um, right now. Like I said, there are varying beliefs about Old Testament prophetic books, Um, and some of the different belief structures about eschatology vary on how they take those prophecies. But we'll talk a little bit about that more later. But for now, let's get back to my parenting illustration. So when our kids reach 18, what happens? 
right? We send them off to college, typically. They gain independence. They eventually move out. They start their own families. And the entire relationship changes from parent-child to parent-friend or parent-adult-child. But this change is very obvious, right? Because conversations are no longer, do this because I said so, and it will keep you safe. Um, Conversations are now things like, tell me about your life and what you're doing. How are things going? And what are you learning? Right? And this is my view of the New Testament. So between the two Testaments, there was this period of quiet, kind of like your kids being away at college. Then Jesus came to earth lived the perfect life, and died on a cross to make a way for us to live forever. And that changed everything, right? The entire conversation changed at that point. No longer was it all about the rules and the regulations and the strict micromanagement that we saw in the Old Testament. Now it was more of a relationship with open communication, Jesus wanting to spend time with us just because, Jesus asking us how we're doing, and yes, offering advice on from time to time about how we could have a better life, but no longer the day in, day out, do this or else bad things will happen. And in my personal opinion, the New Testament really shifts from prophecies about the immediate future to discussions about the end of all things. It's as if God shifted from parent-child to parent-friend or parent-adult-child in the New Testament. And instead of watching our every move in the here and now and describing the negative consequences of these actions, he's now encouraging us to think for ourselves, to make good decisions on our own, and to hold on because very soon it will all be over. The end is coming, and I can't wait for all of you to join me for eternity. Chapter 3, Conversations with an Adult Child. So let's look at some of the New Testament passages that take on this whole new approach, right? plain language prophecies about what's coming, looking at it through the lens of God or Jesus wanting to have these plain conversations with his adult children. We don't have time to walk through every single passage, nor would I ever be able to be 100% sure that I had found them all. Um, But here are just some of the most popular ones. So we're going to start with the first book in the New Testament, which is Matthew. Now, before we get started, let me warn you I'm not going to hold back, okay? I'm, I'm not just going to like give you two or three little flowery verses in the Bible and then go off on a whole 20-minute tangent about what they mean. I'm literally just going to read you verses, one after the other, back to back, so that you get this like drinking from a fire hose kind of a, uh, experience, right? I want, I want you to see that the New Testament is packed full of verses that aren't talking about beasts and and uh, crazy things and symbols. And I mean, there are plain language verses all over the New Testament that talk about the end of time, that talk about this event that's coming in the f- near future. So here we go. For those of you who have never read the Bible before, this is going to be a little a little difficult for you, but just pull up your boots and have a seat, grab some popcorn, uh, and here we go. So Matthew 4, 17, from then on, Jesus began to preach, repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. Chapter 7, 21 to 23, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name, and we cast out demons in your name, and we performed many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, those who break my laws. Chapter 16, verses 24 to 27. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will gain it. And what do you benefit if you gain the entire world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? For the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father and will judge all people according to their deeds. Next up, we have Matthew 24. And I'm literally going to read almost the entire chapter. So this is 24 verses 3 to 51. This is going to be a long one, so here we go. Later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives. His disciples came to him privately and said, Hey, tell us when all this stuff's going to happen. Give us a sign that will signal your return and the end of this world. Jesus told them, Don't let anyone mislead you, for many will come in my name claiming I'm the Messiah, and they will deceive many people. And you will hear of wars and threats of war, but don't panic. Yes, these things must take place, but the end will fall will not follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in many parts of the world. But all of this is only the first of the birth pains, with more to come. Then you will be arrested and persecuted and killed. You will be hated all over the world because you are my followers. And many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and will deceive many people. Sin will run rampant everywhere, and the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the entire world, so that all nations will hear it, and then the end will come. The day is coming when you will see what Daniel the prophet spoke about, the sacrilegious object that causes desolation, standing in the holy place. Reader, pay attention. Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. A person out on the deck of a roof must not go down to his house to pack. A person who is out in the field must not return home to get a coat. How terrible it will be to be pregnant or to be nursing in those days. And pray that your flight is not in the winter or on the Sabbath. For there will be great anguish at that time, more so than since the world began, and it will never be so again. In fact, unless that time of calamity is shortened, not a single person will survive. But it will be shortened for the sake of God's chosen ones. Then, if anyone tells you, look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. For false prophets and false people will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. See, I have warned you about this ahead of time. So, if somebody comes and says, look, the Messiah is out in the desert, don't bother to go and look. Or, look, he's hiding here, don't believe it. For as the lightning flashes in the east and shines to the west, so it will be when the Son of Man comes. Just as the gathering of vultures shows that there is a carcass nearby, so these signs will indicate that the end is near. Immediately after the anguish of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give no light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. 
And then at last, the sign that the Son of Man is coming will appear in the heavens, and there will be deep mourning among the people of the earth, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. And he will send out his angels with a mighty blast of a trumpet, and they will gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth and heaven. Now, learn a lesson from a fig tree. When its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all of these things happen, you can know that his return is very near, right at the door. I tell you of the I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass from the scene until all of these things take place. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. However, no one knows the day or the hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. When the Son of Man returns, it will also be like it was in the days of Noah. In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up until the time that Noah entered his boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. That is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. Two men will be working in the field, and one will be taken, and the other left. Two women will be grinding flour at the mill, one will be taken, the other will be left. So you too must keep watch, for you don't know what day your Lord is coming. But understand this, if a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, he wouldn't need to keep watch, right? You must also be ready all the time, for the Son of Man will come when least expected. A faithful, sensible servant is one to whom the master can give the responsibility of managing his or her household, servants, and feeding them. If the master returns and finds that the servant has done a good job, they will be rewarded. But I tell you the truth, the master will put that servant in charge of all he owns. But what if the servant was evil and thinks, ah, my master won't be back for a long time. And so he begins beating the other servants, partying and getting drunk. The master will return unannounced and unexpected, and he will cut the servant to pieces ew, and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, that was a lot, but let's do one more. Here's one more from Matthew. So chapter 28, verses 19 to 20, it's called the Great Commission. It's basically what Jesus left us with just before he left earth, and then he promised to return. It says, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching these new disciples to obey all the commandments that I've given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, for those of you who grew up in church or have some history with the Bible, you understand that the New Testament starts out with four books, right? They're called the Gospels. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And all four of them tell the story of Jesus, his birth, his life, his death, resurrection, and all of that. And so some of the versions I just, or some of the verses that I just read are in those other books, and some are not, because each author tells the story from a slightly different perspective, and each had a slightly different experience and saw things through a slightly different filter. So I'm not going to go through each of the other three books and pull out similar references to what I just read. 
Matthew had a lot of references to the end of time. And so that's really what I was hoping that you would see. The Old Testament followed people, right? And eventually a large group of people called the children of Israel from the beginning of time to the life of Jesus or the coming of the Messiah, they call it. And a lot of the prophecies in the Old Testament, like we said, either focused on the future of God's chosen people or were pointing to this whole thing about the Messiah coming. However, when the Messiah came, like we talked about, that focus changed. The first book in the New Testament makes that really clear. Jesus was a deconstructionist. He basically tore down a lot of the religious customs that had been created over time. He lived a life of peace and tolerance, and he demonstrated what it means to love people and to serve their needs. And while he did that, he kept talking about this thing coming in the future, the end of the age, a time when everything would be over and things would be made right. Not a huge part of the Old Testament, but here in the New Testament, it becomes this brand new theme. And it's basically a thread that is woven throughout the final 27 books of the Bible. Do you find that strange? In a culture like ours, where people live like there will always be another day, right? Like the world will never end. And yet this Bible that many of us believe in is riddled with information about the end of time. It isn't a secret. It isn't just hinted at. It's right there in plain language. Okay, let's do a quick walkthrough of some of the other passages in the New Testament. So rapid fire, we're just going to go through some of the main ones. Acts 1.1, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. Acts 17.31, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man who he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising Jesus from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 52-54. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall put on incorruption, and this mortal shall put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Hebrews 9.28, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins for many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. 1 Timothy 4.1, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. 2 Timothy 3, 1-5. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. (laughs) 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. 2 Peter 3, 3 3-7, 
Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the very beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Second Peter 3, 10-13 But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then, as the heavens pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Revelation 11 or 3:11 I am coming soon hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Revelation 22:20 20, He who testifies to these things says surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. Now, that might seem like a lot already. But there's another chunk that I pulled out and just held for the very end. It's a bunch of passages from the books of First and Second Thessalonians. And again, this is not typical prophecy, right? This, these aren't the things that we think of when we think of apocalyptic prophecies with beasts and symbols and all those kinds of things. This is just plain language that you see peppered throughout the New Testament. So let's start with First Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. So this is an entire section of the book dedicated to helping people understand the order of things at the end of time. It says, And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so that you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. We tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then, together with them, we who are alive and remain on earth will be caught up to the heavens and the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. Next, we have 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 11. And in this next section, it kind of builds on the other idea um, about what things will be like at the end of time. It says, now concerning now, concerning how and when all things will end, dear brothers and sisters, we don't really need to write you. For you know quite well that the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night. When people are saying everything is peaceful and secure, that's when disaster will fall upon them, as suddenly as a pregnant woman's labor pains begin, and there will be no escape. But 
you aren't in the dark about these things, dear brothers and sisters, and you won't be surprised when the day of the Lord comes like a thief. For you are all children of the light and of the day. We don't belong to the darkness and the night. So be on guard, not asleep like the others. Stay alert and be clear-headed. Night is the time when people sleep and drinkers get drunk. But let us who live in the light be clear-headed, protected by the armor of faith and love and wearing as our helmet the confidence of our salvation. For God chose to save us through Jesus Christ, not to pour out his anger on us. Christ died for us so that whether we are dead or alive when he returns, we can live with him forever. So encourage each other and build each other up just as you are already doing. And then finally, we have 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 11. And this is where the writer really goes over things just one more time. It says, Now, dear brothers and sisters, let us clarify some things about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and how we will be gathered to meet him. Don't be so easily shaken or alarmed by those who say that the day of the Lord has already begun. Don't believe them, even if they claim to have had a spiritual vision, a revelation, or a letter supposedly from us. Don't be fooled by what they say. For the day will not come until there is a great rebellion against God, and this man of lawlessness is revealed, the one who brings destruction. He will exalt himself and defy everything that people call good or God in every object of worship. He will even sit in the temple of God, claiming that he himself is God. Don't you remember that I told you about all of these things when I was with you? And you know what is holding him back, for he can, be re- he can be revealed only when his time comes. For this lawlessness is already at work secretly, and it will remain secret until the one who is holding it steps out of the way. Then this man of lawlessness will be revealed, but the Lord Jesus will slay him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him with the splendor of his coming." This man will come to do the work of Satan with counterfeit power and signs and miracles. He will use every kind of evil deception to fool those on their way to destruction because they refuse to love and accept the truth that would save them. Whew, that was a lot, right? Now, I know that some of you might be a little uneasy right about now. Some because you've never heard all of those verses read back to back before. Others, because this may be the first time you've ever heard them to begin with. And still others, because you've heard them, but reading them again brings back that anxiety and that fear that led you to put the Bible on the top shelf and rarely open it to begin with. And I get it. Like I said, many people choose to read the Psalms and a few Proverbs every now and then, And of course, the book of John, because it's such a touching version of the life of Jesus. But the minute you start hearing about things like this, things about the end of time, all bets are off, right? Let's just put the book on the shelf where it belongs. But if you're like me, you can't help but see the pattern that the entire New Testament is setting things up for this giant climax, for act three, the final showdown, the end of the story, the final chapter, the closing scenes in a movie that has you on the edge of your seat. And that's really my hope for you today, right? Not to get you all nervous, not to get your anxiety kicked up, 
but instead to remind each of us that Jesus came to rewrite history. He came to make a way for us to live forever. On this little planet, death seems like the worst possible thing, right? It seems like the end. Nobody wants to talk about it. Everybody pretends like it'll never happen to them. People exercise and they eat right, you know, just to eke out another year or two if possible. But Jesus came to fix that problem. Yes, death is still hovering right around 100% for each of us. But he made a way so that it isn't the end. Death doesn't have to have the final word. And that's really the beauty of the whole end of time story. Because that's when it all starts. That's when death no longer wins. The dead in Christ will rise to be with him in the clouds. Now, if that isn't good news, I'm not sure what is. So let's land the plane. This week, we dove into some pretty basic end-of-time language. Just plain and simple words that we can all understand. And we discussed how, that we, how we're able to view these verses in a couple different ways. Right? First, we can view it with fear and anxiety because it does sound a little scary. It's a little crazy to think that our entire world, everything we know and understand could come to a screeching halt. But secondly, we can face it with fascination and gratitude, knowing that in order for us to live forever and for our loved ones to return to life, the end has to come. I'm so glad you chose to be with us here again this week. Um, my goal is really to keep us focused on that, on the positive, the good news that the end is really the beginning of something brand new, something that will last forever, something so amazing that we can't even imagine what it'll be like. Next week, we're going to move from the simple plain language stuff a bit deeper into prophecy. But don't worry, we're going to start simple. Right? We're going to do a little history lesson from the book of Daniel um, and just get our feet wet before we really dive in. So have a great week, friends. Again, thank you so much for joining us. Um, until next week, keep transcending human. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Transcend Human podcast. If you're interested in the show notes for this episode, head on over to transcendhuman.com forward slash podcast and navigate to the episode you're looking for. On the website, you'll also find blog posts, podcast series, and other helpful resources to help you navigate the Transcend Human ecosystem. You'll also find links to our social media channels. And as always, if you have questions, feel free to contact us at info at transcendhuman.com. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you back here on Monday morning.